You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. My name is Gordy Slack. Do you remember what you were doing yesterday? Yeah, I do. And about this time last year, can you picture what you were doing? Yes. Can you imagine the span of time that takes us back 10,000 years on this planet? Well, I can kind of imagine my calendar extending back 10,000 years, but it's very long. Can you get your head around 4.5 billion years ago when the Earth was being formed? <laughs> Holy cow. Um, no, I can't. I mean, that's just off my, off my calendar altogether. Four and a half billion years ago? Well, who can fathom such a time scale? A billion, much less 4.567 billion is an awful lot to get your head around. And it gives you real perspective on how very deep, deep time is. It's easier to stay in the present or meditate on and fret about our future. That's what most of us do best. Who's really weighted down by the eonic stretches of geologic and cosmological events? I'm Jim Rosenau. I'm an artist working in Berkeley, California. Jim says that recently he became preoccupied with time. No, actually more than that, distracted, unnerved. How to say... I became almost obsessed with the question of deep time. Well, it doesn't help that he's a reader. I mean, those gosh darn books. Because I've been reading a lot about biology and the history of life on Earth and the geology of Earth. And I started to wonder if I could ever understand what those time sequences meant. Cambrian, Devonian, Carboniferous. They use these, Paleozoic, what to me were very Triassic, strange, Jurassic, I guess it's Greek and Latin words to describe the epics of time, like Mesozoic. Paleocene, I can guess what it Miocene, might mean. I could look it up, but Biocene, I can't retain it. Pleistocene, Holocene, Cenozoic. And I don't know what those amounts of time mean relative to another because they keep switching from one kind of time, like so many hundred thousands of years to negative time, so many hundred thousands of years ago. Okay, but you can relate to yesterday and last week. Could you get a feeling for what yesterday or last week or last month is like? No problem. Okay, and how about a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago? I can imagine it. It's not, I'm 55 years old. I can imagine it. But Jim, a hundred million years ago when dinosaurs were still stomping the landscape or four and a half billion years ago when the solar system was created, that's when you lose your grip? On time, I mean? That's right. It's not easy to zoom out from the hour, year, decadal units of time by which we live our lives to millennia. But to understand life on Earth, 
or especially how the universe came to be, we have to contemplate time on a vastly more expansive scale. The Big Picture of Time. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak, and this is Big Picture Science. Many of us may feel like Jim Rosenau, interested in the history of the Earth and how it and life came to be, but we have at best a slippery, really it's an unsatisfactory, grasp of the enormous time intervals involved. But all is not lost for Jim because... I ran into a book, The Story of the Earth, by Robert Hazen. I'm Bob Hazen. I'm a senior staff scientist at the Carnegie Institution of Washington. Which divides time of Earth history into named chapters that are visual. The Red Earth, the White Earth, the Black Earth, that aptly describe what the stage of Earth history was and why it was going on. And to just see it in a visual way rather than what for me are very abstract ways allowed me to relax and just think about the material without trying to place it in a mathematical spectrum where I'm essentially illiterate. It's okay, Jim. 11 out of 10 people are mathematically illiterate. Good, but not you, Molly. Robert Hazen, indeed, divides this story of Earth into chapters. The red Earth. The newly formed planet spews volcanic lava and endures ceaseless impacts from fiery asteroids. The white Earth. A cooling-off period blankets everything in ice. The black Earth. The surface solidifies into rock and life becomes possible. And that leads to the familiar landscapes we inhabit now. But while telling the story of Earth in a visual, narrative way helps make deep time more tractable, even Robert Hazen uses a trick to get his mind around these incredible temporal stretches. He takes a walk. I like going on long walks, and when I do that, I think each footstep, each step, think of that as being 100 years. And so you start saying, well, if I kept walking at this pace, how long would I have to walk to to go back a million years or a hundred million years or a billion years. And it turns out if you walked about 20 miles a day, each pace representing a hundred years, it would take you more than four years to go back to the beginning of Earth history. So it gives you real perspective on how very deep, deep time is. That's a great trick, Bob. So it sounds like you, at least, a professional geophysicist, can get your mind around a million or a billion years in geologic time. You know, Seth, I don't think anybody can understand a billion of anything. But if you start thinking about a story where Earth has a beginning, it has a middle, it has a middle age, and we hope a long, long future, you can sort of put things as events that are a sequence, and that makes it perhaps a little bit easier. But still, a billion, much less 4.567 billion, is an awful lot to get your head around. I think that a lot of people, Bob, look at the Earth every day. They don't see a whole lot of changes except those changes that we ourselves wreak. When you think of the Earth in the deep past, of course, when you think of deep time, the Earth was really not the same at all. It's it's had some very dramatic epochs. Can you kind of describe for me what Earth would have looked like to aliens that might have visited this planet four and a half billion years ago? So Earth is a planet of change. And when it formed, it was this red-hot, glowing, sort of volcanic place where black crust was forming. And so for the first hundred million years, it probably was a very black planet. And then volcanic vapors came out and and you had water precipitating on the surface and early shallow oceans maybe surrounded most of the planet. Of course, in between there, there was the moon forming event, a giant Mars-sized object smashes into Earth, obliterates everything, turns the whole planet into a molten 
mush or even into incandescent rock vapors that rain down on the surface. So think about that. I mean, that's the first hundred million years, and we're seeing pretty dramatic changes. But it, it keeps on going like that. For four billion years, it's a planet of change. Can, can you give me some of the other interesting epochs that would make for, I don't know, unusual postcards from the planet's past? Well, I like to think about the time when the oceans were first punctuated by the kinds of islands that would eventually form the continents. You can imagine volcanoes putting out rocks that decorate the surface, first islands, and the islands clump together to form small continents and then bigger continents and eventually supercontinents. And so suddenly we go from a planet that's almost completely blue to one that has a largely gray surface. And wasn't there also a time when the planet was covered with ice? I'm not talking about the ice ages. Those are fairly recent, but but something a little more dramatic. Boy, you think about all these changes that Earth goes through. It goes from this gray planet, and then you have something called the great oxidation event where microbes produce oxygen, and that basically rusts the surface, so the whole planet looks kind of red, plus the blue oceans. And then we have these periods, oh, roughly 700 million years ago, when the entire planet seems to have frozen over. You get these feedback effects that cause ice to go from the poles, maybe all the way down to the equator, so Earth becomes a white planet. So the Earth changes dramatically. I think uh, that's, that's clear. And it also has a thriving biosphere. That's certainly clear. It's kind of tempting to think of these two um, phenomena as being separate phenomena. There's the geology, which is determining, you know, whether we're in a snowball condition or whether we're on molten surface or whatever. And then there's the biology. But you write that these are intertwined far more than we had suspected. Oh, Seth, this is the most exciting thing that's happening in geology and biology, I think, these days, because we're seeing the co-evolution of the rocks and life. And right back from the beginning, the origin of life we now know had to depend in some way on minerals. There's no way you can do certain chemical tricks that you need to get the origin of life started. But then once life comes into play, life starts making its own minerals and all kinds of new minerals that never occurred on Earth before. This is just an amazing set of discoveries, this co-evolution. Can, can you give me an example? I mean, if I go to the museum in Washington, D.C., they have a mineral hall in all these beautiful crystals with strange names and so forth. Are, are many of those the result of biological action? Absolutely. Get this. If you go into that mineral hall, fully two-thirds of all the different beautiful mineral species you see are an indirect consequence of life, in particular, the consequence of the oxygen that life produced through photosynthesis. That oxygen transformed many common minerals at Earth's surface into new forms, including some of my favorites, turquoise, azurite, malachite. Those are copper minerals that just simply don't form until you have oxygen in the atmosphere. And there, there are thousands and thousands of other minerals like that, beautiful orange and yellow and green and blue minerals that are many of my favorites. They're all because of life. Okay, now this big oxygenation event, that was what, about 2 billion years ago when suddenly the atmosphere developed a lot of oxygen? Yeah, about 2.2, 2.4 is what most people estimate, and it's because you see changes in the chemistry of rocks being deposited at or near Earth's surface. That's the sort of big tipping point where life takes over, it changes the atmosphere, and really then changes the whole near-surface environment, including the rocks and minerals. So before that happened, the atmosphere of the Earth didn't have a whole lot of oxygen. We wouldn't be happy to return to Earth three billion years ago uh, and try and breathe. Wow, you wouldn't be happy 
three billion years ago, you wouldn't be happy two billion years ago. You wouldn't have been happy one billion years ago because there was only about 1% oxygen as opposed to the 20% we have now. No, Earth was really a lethal surface environment for humans. And what's more, without the oxygen rich that we have today, you don't have an ozone layer, so you're not protected from ultraviolet radiation, so life can't go on land, so you don't have a terrestrial biosphere, on and on. I mean, all these feedbacks, it's just astonishing. The oxygen was produced by photosynthesis. I think uh, many people will know that. But it's not the photosynthesis of, you know, rubber plants in the corner here or uh, the trees outside. What, what, what sort of photosynthesis was going on two to three billion years ago that produced all that oxygen? So the photosynthesis was basically very primitive algae, something called cyanobacteria. These are like green algal slimes, and there may even have been other colors, maybe some purple stuff and some brown stuff, doing all this interesting photochemistry. The sunlight comes in, the microbes suck the sunlight and, and convert it into the energy they need, and then they're byproducts, and one of those byproducts is oxygen. Uh, but wouldn't that oxygen just react with the iron in the soil to make, you know, nice red clays and sort of rusty-looking rocks? Uh, that's the key. That's the key, Seth, that for, for billions of years, you're producing this oxygen, but almost as fast as you produce it, it's reacting with all of those unstable minerals at the near-surface environment. And that's why you produce new minerals, because the old ones, they rust, they oxidize, they form all kinds of new weathering products that never could have occurred before. Do you think that there's anything sort of special about this whole deep-time history of Earth's intertwined biology and geology? Or, or would this have happened on any other planet sort of like the Earth? I mean, are we special? Oh, we are special. <laughs> we are special. Even if, even if we're not special, we're special. But it, we're, we're special in the sense that we see these incredible feedbacks. We see the complex interplay of evolving systems. Life evolves, but in a very real sense, not a Darwinian sense, but in a very real sense, minerals evolve too. They go through stages of having much simpler, much fewer minerals to more and more complex minerals, more different sizes and shapes of minerals distributed differently. And so this idea of an evolving planet where life plays a major role, but there's also the feedback from rocks and minerals, that's really an exciting concept to me. Bob, is there a period of Earth's history, of its deep time past, that is still a total mystery to us that we really don't know much about. Earth is 4.5 billion years old, and I'd say probably about the first 4.5 billion years is pretty much a mystery to us right now. That's a high percentage. We, yeah, it's a high percentage. We know a lot more about the last half billion years and certainly a significant amount about the first, the last billion years. But, but the early history, what were the oceans like? What were the atmosphere like? When did the continents form? How deep were the oceans? You know, you know, what would it have been like standing on the surface or looking at Earth from space? We can make speculations that are informed, but we really don't know very much. And it's so exciting in science. You know, if you knew something, if you could memorize the whole history of Earth, that wouldn't be very much fun. But imagining and then going out and running experiments and going into the field and looking at rocks, it's so much fun. It, it sounds like job security for you in a way. Oh, yeah, <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> well, Bob Hazen, thank you so very much for talking with us. Thank you so much, Seth. Robert Hazen is a senior staff scientist at the Carnegie Institution of Washington and is an earth scientist at George Mason University. Where does he find the time?
Okay, so that's the story of Earth. But what about me? I mean, what do these vast amounts of time have to do with me here now? Turns out, everything. From the few elements formed in the fiery blast of the Big Bang to the minerals and rocks holding up your sneakers, you are a consequence of the elements and the processes that have shaped the cosmos over deep time. But take a minute to ponder that. It's Big Picture Science. This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind souffles, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality, with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to youtube.com slash labxnas. That's youtube.com slash labxnas. Rocks and minerals help make life possible on Earth, as we heard, so thank your local supply of quartz for your lovely lifestyle. But we can take it farther. Imagine discovering a fossil in a limestone quarry. You can imagine how it was preserved and even the living animal that once housed that skeleton. But can you connect that mineralized creature to the stars above? Well, it seems improbable because some of those stars are a hundred times as old as that fossil. Biology, geology, they unfold on timescales of millions of years. But that's small potatoes compared to cosmologic time, billions of years. Still, we're connected to events that unfold on those intervals, too. So get ready to stretch the scales of time. The universe within, discovering the common history of rocks, planets, and people, is the new book by University of Chicago paleontologist and evolutionary biologist Neil Shubin. We spoke to him when his book, Your Inner Fish, came out. And we learned that if you look at your hand, I guess you probably see a hand. Neil sees something different. Yeah, I see a fish fin. (laughs) If you look at fish of about 375 million years old, and actually some older, what you find are antecedents of our arms and legs uh, in the fins of those fish. Okay, so that's what you have in common with your local trout. But how about your local star system? The famous paleontologist now wrestles with timescales even longer than the age of the Earth. Yeah, coming to grips with time is one of the things that paleontologists and cosmologists really have to come to grips with very early in their careers. You know, because, you know, the act of being a paleontologist, you know, is is pretty simple. You know, you're looking at the ground and picking up bones. Finding fossils is just a matter of discovery. It's almost like an Easter egg hunt. But then the hard part is really wrapping your head around and finding meaning in the time that we deal with in terms of millions, if not hundreds of millions of years, and sometimes even billions. And finding that meaning is also identifying what connects us on this grander timescale. Now, looking at morphology, I can understand how I'm related to an ape 
and even a fish now, because we spoke to you about your book, The Inner Fish. So instead of seeing a human hand, now I see a fish fin when I look at my hand, right? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> okay. But um, you see the history in the human body of, of uh, not just our connection to other animals, but beyond that to our connection to to the whole universe, really. How is that? Well, indeed, you know, we, as you look at time, you know, from millions to billions of years, what you see is layer after layer of events in the history of uh, species, the planet, you know, the cosmos beyond inside of us. And that is because we share a history, our lineage, our, our bodies uh, have been shaped by great moments in the past. And when you start to see that, what you start to see is that in every, you know, gene, every organ, and every cell of our body, you see the impacts of history, artifacts of that history lie inside of us, from the materials that, that, that compose us, the atoms and molecules and so forth, uh, which were shaped by in great moments in the history of the universe, to how our organs are put together and how our bodies work, which sometimes share a history uh, with the, um, the solar system and, and the planet itself. Well, when you talk about the materials that make us up, I believe that that's what prompted Carl Sagan to say that we evolved from stardust. What does that mean, though, really? I remember the first time I heard that, you know, I was a, I was a teenager, and it just blew my mind, you know, that the, the materials that make our body uh, had their birth in other worlds and stars. And what it means is that the atoms inside of us were born, the nuclei uh, were born, uh, some of them a few million, millions of years after the Big Bang, but the ever larger ones have been shaped by the uh, nuclear fusion reactions that occur within stars. So the evolution of stars as they go and consume ever different fuels, ever ever larger nuclei to make ever larger ones you know, until they get to iron, what happens is you're generating the elements or components of the elements which make our body, the iron, the, the oxygen, the hydrogen, uh, which began after the Big Bang. So all this is inside of us. The, you know, we are walking bags of, uh, of stardust, as, as uh, Joni Mitchell and <laughs> Carl Sagan uh, have said. And what's remarkable to me is that you know, we're part of this grand recycling event that long after we're gone, long after our planet's gone, indeed long after our solar system is gone, the elements and material that is inside our bodies now will be part of other worlds, you know. So we are a part, deeply connected in this grand cycle uh, of recycling of, uh, of material, of, of atomic nuclei, uh, to the rest of the universe. I like to think of it as the original recycling program. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But not all elements. Helium, apparently, is not found within us. And it's strange because it's the most abundant element in the universe. And why aren't we made of helium? Well, because it's not a reactive element. You know, so if you look at, you know, the abundant elements inside us are ones that can do the electron trades, form the various bonds that are important in metabolism and living systems and growth and development, uh, energy and so forth, respiration. Uh, helium is inert, and so that one uh, doesn't make the cut <laughs> to be in our body. So it's, while it's abundant in the cosmos, it's not present in our bodies. So when we feel lightheaded, it's for other reasons. Yeah, exactly. But does that mean that literally molecules that exist in me are billions of years old? Oh, you bet. Yeah, you bet. I mean, the, the hydrogen, some of the hydrogen nuclei had their birth, you know, in the in the first million years after the Big Bang, you know. And so, but then others, ever larger ones, have been part of other stars. So when you look at your hand, yeah, the first thing you'll see is that fish fin, that modified fish fin. <laughs> but as you look deeper into the, into the materials that compose it, you'll see stars. And so, uh, to me, that's the beauty of, of, of seeing bodies in deep time, because what you start to see 
it, it's like peeling an onion. You know, you start to see layer after layer of history. First, you see the layers of our history we share with the living world, then the layers of the history we share with the, the physical universe. But you make the case that we should not just make the connections with our bodies and the ancient elements of the universe, but with some of the forces that came afterward and a series of happy accidents. One of them is plate tectonics. And we should be lucky, you write, that the plates move around and they slam into each other. Why? (laughs) What does that have to do with us sitting here today talking to each other? Well, the movement of the plates and the reconfiguration of the Earth, which is, you know, the outcome of one of the great theories uh, of, uh, of, of science, which is the theory of plate tectonics, really provided the means to understand the interaction uh, among water or oceans, uh, atmosphere, and land masses. Because as land masses move around, as oceans form and go and disappear or move about in certain ways, you're changing um, the way that water, uh, carbon, oxygen move through the, uh, the, the biosphere, the Earth system. And that has impacted evolution, that has impacted the planet in very important ways. Because the configuration of the continents just doesn't just affect, you know, how they're connected and how species may move about the world, but it also affects what global climates may be, even uh, the relative amounts of oxygen that exist at different time periods. There have been experiments along the way that have illustrated basic concepts in physics, and you write about some of these experiments. And these concepts explain why we are where we are. And one story you tell which is a bizarre one, um, is one of the Harvard zoologists, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, Thomas Barber and Philip Darlington, yeah. who un- undertook a, a pretty daring and probably today totally unethical study of frogs. I'll just give the setup. It begins with a rooftop and a bucket of frogs. And what happened next? Well, transport to the Museum of Comparative Zoology in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where Barber and Darlington were having a little tussle over how frogs spread around the globe. And um, to settle the debate, it ended up where Darlington carried a bucket of frogs to the roof of the MCZ. It's a five-story building, and threw them off the roof one by one uh, to the to the grass below. And and Barbara was noting, you know, what happened to the frogs, and they all appeared to be dead, as you'd imagine. But by the time uh, there's, by the time Darlington returned to the ground and saw Barber, <laughs> he saw all the frogs were living. <laughs> so he won the bet. The frogs were able to withstand a, you know, a five-story fall. Hold now, on, hold on. So these these frogs got tossed off a, a roof. <laughs> yeah, they did. Okay, there's one guy's tossing them off the roof, and the other one is watching what happens when they hit the ground. And yeah, at first exactly. they look like they've been killed. You bet, you know, but they were dazed. And then, you know, they're like frogs. They just shook it off and just hopped away. They were <laughs> so, dazed? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so it turns out the ability, as you'd imagine, to survive a fall depends on how big you are and what your shape is, you know. And so, you know, if you threw a rhinoceros off the uh, uh, off the fifth story uh, roof of the MCZ, it would have a different splat <laughs> if you threw a caterpillar or a frog. So clearly, you know, body size matters uh, in this ability to survive a fall, which is essentially what those two were testing. But but how do our perfectly proportioned bodies, I like to think of them that way, whether we're frogs or humans or rhinoceroses, I believe that's the plural of rhinoceros. <laughs> rhinoceri, I guess, I don't know, yeah. How do they all tie, how do these body shapes and sizes tie into the forces over time that shape things? Yeah, there are a couple great events there. So if you think about, you know, the, the, the size range of living creatures, there's really two worlds. There's the world of microscopic organisms, 
uh, and there's the world of creatures with bodies that are larger. And the, the important forces for creatures that are microscopic uh, or single-celled in most cases are uh, the intermolecular forces like surface tension and, and others. That really matters for those things as they move about and as they respire and they do their businesses as little microbes. You know, for bodied organisms, those, those, you know, for creatures like us, those forces aren't particularly, you know, important. It's really gravity that's you know, the one we're dealing with most of the time. So one of the great moments in the evolution of size was the shift from a world dominated by those intermolecular forces, such as microbial creatures experience, and uh, a world dominated by, you know, gravity. And that event that shifted that world, that, that led life from that one to the other, uh, happened uh, oh, about a billion years ago with the origin of bodies, when cells came together, when single-celled organisms came together to make a new kind of individual, which is a multicellular creature, much like an animal or a plant who has a body, and the body has many cells, and, and those cells have a division of labor. And then what is the interplay with gravity as these bodies are evolving from multicellular to you know small organisms and larger and more complex organisms? over time, how are they interplaying with gravity? And how is gravity, the force of gravity, shaping evolution? Well, if you think about you know, how our bodies are shaped, uh, and, or, you know, versus us versus an elephant, really our bodies are dealing with the bending moments uh, that are imposed by gravity on our skeletons. So just take our skeletons and the proportions of our bodies. Those are the consequence of having a certain gravitational pull, if you will, uh, that our bodies deal with as we run, as we walk, as we hop and climb and so forth. And, you know, that, just like many variables, like a lot of variables, is dependent on, you know, our position, the size of our planet, and uh, its its relative shape in the in the in the solar system. So if the if for some reason the Earth formed at a different size, uh, the gravitational pull uh, of uh, of our of our bodies on the planet and the, the consequent bending moments would have meant a different relationship between size and shape that exists in the in the natural world. It's just a wonderful example of the fine interplay of the, the many variables that allowed life as we know it to come about and look the way it does. Neil Shubin, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. It's been great to talk to you. Neil Shubin is a paleontologist and evolutionary biologist and associate dean of biological sciences at the University of Chicago. He's also the author of The Universe Within, Discovering the Common History of Rocks, Planets, and People. Oh, and by the way, rhinoceroses is an acceptable plural of rhinoceros. Astronomers deal with deep time all the time. Galaxies that are hundreds of millions of light years away are hundreds of millions of years in the past. But let's turn our gaze now to the future of the universe and a stretch of time that will be far, far deeper than the past. Years ago, I was on a riverboat in Botswana with astronomer Frank Drake. It was a beautiful day. We were just chilling out, watching the wildlife along the shore. There were lions and elephants, always compelling, but also numerous monkeys. They're particularly fun to observe because, well, they're so human, or almost human. As we glided downstream, I idly asked, Frank, suppose we were wiped out tomorrow. All homo sapiens were to disappear. Do you think these simians swinging through the trees here would eventually replace us as an intelligent technological species? Frank drew in his breath and said, well, you look at them and you say, oh man, they've got a long way to go. But then you consider what can happen during the course of truly deep time. 
four billion years of deep time. That's what it's taken to go from simple microscopic cells to something as complicated as us. But that's nothing compared to what's to come. In the story of the universe, the starting pistol has only just been fired. And let me tell you what we think will happen in future deep time. In five billion years, our sun will start to sputter. It's fuel exhausted. The sun will swell up and boil away all the oceans of Earth. That's not just an idea. That's a solid prediction. And it's still nothing. Our descendants could deal with this crisis by moving to another star system, except that in a few hundred billion years, the last star in the cosmos will wink out. Everything will go dark, a perpetual dusk that will extinguish all the life that depends on sunlight. And still, that's only a beginning. Over the course of trillions of years, random close encounters of stars will fling some of them deep beyond the frontiers of our galaxy, while others will be hurtled into a growing black hole in the galaxy's center. So eventually, the Milky Way will be nothing but a giant black hole, no stars orbiting it, and no light will shine. And still, that's not the end. In 10 to the 100 years, that's a 1 followed by 100 zeros, by the way, a number known as a Google, the last thing will happen. The biggest of the black holes will finally evaporate in a burst of gamma rays. What happens after that? Well, as far as we know, the universe will just continue to exist and continue to expand forever. Nothing will happen. There will be no action anywhere, not enough energy to roast a marshmallow, just an infinity of cold, dark, and ever-emptier space, sparsely filled with the remnants of stuff that was once stars, planets, and us. Our future is far deeper than our past, and perhaps that's of some comfort to the monkeys enjoying a sunny afternoon along the river. Thankfully, a 10 to the 100th years is still a ways off. Coming up, how the slow march of minutes, years, and millennia turns some land-dwelling animals into the largest creatures to grace the planet. And I don't mean dinos. Also, a time-traveling instrument transports us to nearly the beginnings of the universe. So take a deep breath and contemplate deep time on Big Picture Science. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Evolution takes time, and, and perhaps those monkeys swinging from the trees will develop technological skills if one day humans do disappear. I mean, a lot can happen when species are under environmental pressure and they have the time to evolve. Neil Shubin spoke about the importance that size has played in evolution. Being small helps in some ways, being large in others. Let's look more closely at just how size changes over time. Now, the largest animal in the world today... The blue whale. ...is the largest animal ever to inhabit the Earth. But blue whales weren't always 100 feet long. As reporter Marissa Fessenden discovered at a recent science conference, not only were the first whales much smaller they started out with feet. Nicholas Pyanson is curator of fossil marine mammals at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. In the fossil record, if we wind the clock back far enough, we're going to find whales that are smaller and smaller and smaller until we get back to the first whales that made this critical transition from land to sea. And as a result of paleontological fieldwork over the last 30 years, we have a deeper understanding of that early evolutionary history that happened between 55 and about 40 million years ago. We're talking about the Eocene broadly. Those earliest whales that we find are whales that are about the size of a large dog, say a golden retriever. 
and they didn't look too dissimilar from them either. Although we do see from the fossil record a variety of different types. We see early whales that look more like river otters or early whales that almost look like they're trying to mimic a crocodile. And that's a very common pattern that we see in evolutionary biology. When we look at the radiation, the initial evolution of many groups, there's massive experimentation in a lot of different ecological modes. But only one lineage made it through that period of experimentation, and that's the lineage that gave rise to living baleen whales and toothed whales, the two great groups of living cetaceans. I think that people usually think about the transition from sea to land. What were the pressures from these animals that became whales? What drove them into the ocean? That's a great question. And so whale evolution is very much about going the reverse, from land back to sea. So this is what paleontology can and can't do. Paleontology is great for telling us how. The why causes are much trickier. And so there's lots of good reasons to go back to the ocean from land. Um, one might be to escape predators. Or maybe it's to take advantage of resources. Or maybe it's a variety of reasons that we can't imagine. What we are able to document are specific transitions in a whole bunch of different aspects that we're interested in knowing about. What kind of morphological changes are we talking about here? We're talking about wholesale changes in the body plan that allowed the ancestors of today's whales to conquer the ocean. The fossil record only gives us a trace of bones that once were, so we can talk about specific changes in the skeleton of early whales that allowed them to be much better suited to life in the water than life on land. That specifically includes decoupling of the hips from the backbone. We see that with a lot of seals and sea lions, and we think that that transition was key, decoupling the hind limbs so that the backbone could undulate. Other transitions include changes to the skull. The nostrils go backwards over the level of the orbits or eyeballs. The nostrils going back allow the body to remain much more horizontal than vertically placed. And so that allows for, for living full time underneath the water. Then there's changes to how the animal moves in the water, not just associated with the back end of the animal, but also with the forelimbs. Forelimbs become more and more paddle-shaped. And so what's very interesting to me as a paleontologist is the sequence of changes that we see in the bony structures of whales actually have happened before. And they've happened before in the age of the dinosaurs with marine reptiles. Many different groups of marine reptiles have gone back to the water as well. Ichthyosaurs, the classic sea lizards. And then there's also mosasaurs. And then there's just plesiosaurs and pliosaurs, there's whole lineages of marine reptiles that have also done a land-to-sea transition. And we see a lot of similar changes in their body plan as well that are mirrored with whales. So what that tells us is that selection is a very strong driver on a specific body form for living in the water. Paddle-shaped limbs, maybe an undulating backbone of one kind or another, and then changes to your sensory systems, how you see, how you smell. And, of course, there's a lot of other changes that we can only infer, like reproductive changes. These first whales were quite small, but when did the first large whales actually show up in the fossil record? So some of the earliest whales, some of the first whales that we actually found that belong to the group of archaeocetes, the ancient whales, are actually very large, and they're larger than many of the living whales we have. This is an animal called Basilosaurus, and it's actually the first fossil whale found in North America. And when they originally found it, they thought it was a giant sea serpent and they sent it all the way to England for identification. And what the very famous anatomist, Sir Richard Owen, said in England at the time, this is in the 1850s, he said, that's no reptile, that's actually a mammal. And it's not just any mammal, it's an early whale. 
that skull, the skull of that animal and the rest of the skeleton amounts to an animal that's probably on the order of 50, 60 feet long. So that's about the size of a living humpback whale. Those animals, of course, did not yield any descendants. And so when you ask the question about when did whales get big, we're really talking about living whales, both the baleen whales and toothed whales. It seems like they got big very recently, and that's in the, probably the last 10 to 5 million years. Why did they get so big? That's a great question. So there's probably a lot of different reasons because we're talking about different kinds of whales that have gotten big. Blue whales, we think it has something to do with their lunge feeding lifestyle. So blue whales, fin whales, humpbacks, they're definitely larger than their close relatives. And we think that their large body size has a lot to do with their specific feeding style that's very efficient, despite being probably costly in some ways. And that's just where we stand with we don't really know much beyond that. Uh, and then there's sperm whales, which get very, very big. A male sperm whale will sometimes be 70 feet long. So the reasons for getting big for a sperm whale are actually different from being a baleen whale, and that probably has a lot to do with diving deep. Sperm whales are the champion divers of the marine mammal world. We think they could dive as deep as 3,000 meters because we find their teeth stuck in transatlantic cables. And so why dive deep? We think that a lot of that has to do with pursuing squid prey to depth. And it's only recently, actually, there's a fantastic Discovery Channel report showing the first glimpses of Architeuthis, the giant squid. We know precious little about the squid that live at depth throughout the world's oceans. And it's likely that sperm whales evolved their large body size to pursue prey deeper and deeper and deeper, including the giant squid. That evidence to me is, suggests an evolutionary arms race, where sperm whales got bigger, their prey got larger in response. And so right now, again, we live in this age of giants with sperm whales being enormous, bowhead and right whales being enormous, blue whales being enormous. This is something we don't see in the fossil record. And one of the questions is whether this is an active trend of whales getting bigger or whether it's just passive diffusion through time that there's a lower limit and an upper limit that will be achieved over evolutionary time. Nicholas Pienson is curator of fossil marine mammals at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. Well, a lot of us don't find dealing with eons easy. For cosmologists wrestling with the origins of the universe, thinking in terms of deep time actually helps in dealing with tremendous distances. My name is Allison Peck, and I am a scientist at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory. One of the reasons that astronomers do tend to think in terms of the percent of the age of the universe rather than thinking in miles or kilometers or, you know, your normal units of distance is simply because it's so incredibly large that it's very hard to conceptualize in normal units. And at the same time, because you're always looking back in time when you're looking far in distance, then it just makes sense to measure distance using time. And so in that sense, the way one can visualize objects that we're looking at is by thinking about when they occurred as well as where they are occurring. So Allison finds it easier to envision deep time than deep space, although of course they're intertwined in all astronomical observation because looking across the immense spaces of the cosmos is a form of time travel. The instrument that she's using to do that is called ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array. 
this phalanx of radio telescopes is perched high on a plateau in the Atacama Desert of northern Chile. Now, you might be picturing a traditional telescope with a big mirror hunkered down in a dome, but ALMA looks more like a communication center. 66 large antennas, each 12 meters or nearly 40 feet in diameter, open and exposed to the weather. Like a field of metal mushrooms high in the Andes. Almost not an optical telescope, it's a radio telescope, and it operates in the millimeter and the submillimeter regime. That's a pretty short wavelength for radio waves, but it's a much longer wavelength in visible light. You, you can't see millimeter waves, but Alma can. And use them to reveal secrets about the universe billions of years ago. Okay, Allison, why put this telescope in Chile? I mean, is it the cuisine? It's definitely not the cuisine. <laughs> Um, So the radio telescope is in Chile because we don't have to worry about optical light interfering with the observations. We can even observe in the daytime. What we have to worry about is water. Water in the atmosphere absorbs the frequency of light that's coming towards the Earth from these celestial objects. So we want to be above as much of the water as possible, and that means going to high altitude. So in Chile, you have this mountain range, the Andes, where there's a very large flat plateau where we can put the antennas that comprise the telescope. In addition to the fact that it's so high, it's incredibly dry. We're right on the edge of the Atacama Desert, which is thought to be one of the driest places on the Earth. So the air that is above us, above the telescope, has very, very little water in it to absorb the signals that we're trying to receive. Okay, so when you say your problem is water, it's not water on the ground, of course. You're worried about atmospheric uh, water vapor that's, that's blocking the radio waves you're trying to measure. Exactly. All right. So Alma is looking at uh, what part of the radio dial? I mean, th- these aren't the frequencies that I, you know, pick up on my FM uh, receiver, are they? No, that's right. So we're a little bit shorter than your normal radio telescope, shorter than your FM radio, um, but longer than infrared. So these are wavelengths that are, well, millimeter waves, right? The wavelength is like a millimeter, whereas the wavelength for my AM radio station might be uh, hundreds of feet. That's exactly right. Okay. All right, so Alma can look at a part of the radio dial that other instruments just can't measure. What's in it for us to do that? Why, why do that? One of the fascinating things about being able to look in this wavelength regime, which is very new, it's only recently been possible to receive and amplify signals in this wavelength regime, but this is where a lot of molecules in the universe radiate. Now, molecules radiate at a very well-known frequency. We know exactly where to find the the radiation coming from molecules. So if we want to look at what's going on chemically in the universe, if we want to see if there's more carbon monoxide, if we want to see if there are even amino acids, things that could lead to life, then we want to look with the ALMA telescope. Okay. Now, when we look into space, of course, Allison, we're looking back in time. Everybody knows that. You look at the moon, you're seeing it as it was a second and a half ago. How far back can ALMA look in time? It's a very interesting question, actually, because we can look as far back in time as there are things that light up. So what we're doing is we're looking towards the beginning of the universe when we look this far back in time. So at what point in time do things start to glow in the beginning of the universe? Now, we have very early galaxies that exist at just a few percent of the age of the universe. So when we talk about looking back in time, we're not talking about looking back minutes or or years. We're talking about looking back through almost all of the universe to the point where these galaxies are just being born. They're just forming. Okay, so this is sort of like trying to uh, deduce 
the history of uh, a human, you know, how they go from babies to, <laughs> you know, up through the decades of their life by looking back in time. Uh, what, what are some of the differences? I, one thing that I, I believe Alma has found is that there was a time in the early universe when galaxies were still young that they made a lot more stars than they're making today. That's right. That's right. They were very active and there were a lot of mergers happening. Because of the expansion of the universe, things were more cramped in the beginning. Things were really packed in. And so the galaxies were interacting in ways that we don't really see as much near us today. And that's one of the things that strongly affected their evolution. Um, just to come back to the point that you made before about looking at children to see how they change, it's very much like rather than watching one child from birth all the way up to adulthood to see how that child evolves, it's like taking children of all ages and lining them up and comparing them to get a general sense of how children might evolve. All right. So we look back in time. We see that uh, the, the galaxies were different. The universe looked different. If we had, had arisen, you know, 10 billion years ago instead of when, when we did, uh, we'd look around and, and, and things would look, I mean, galaxies would look different. They would, there would be more bright stars in the sky. What, what sort of difference might I see? Um, yeah, so if we were to look back several billion years, we would see that there was a period of very intense star formation. All of the galaxies seemed to be going through more star formation than they are today. And so things would be brighter. Things would be, in a way, more exciting. There would be a lot more going on. And in addition, we would be seeing the growth of black holes in these galaxies. Now, a lot of galaxies have a black hole in the center, which is swallowing material from the galaxy, you know, that's just falling into the gravitational potential there. And it's shooting out these giant jets of plasma, which is a very exciting event. And it's been going on through, as far as we know, the course of the universe. But there was a period where this was all very intense. Okay, so you learn how galaxies evolve. I think it was recently announced that Alma had found water in a distant galaxy far, far away and a long, long time ago. Where, where was the water found? So one of the things that ALMA can do is to detect molecules that are found on Earth, common molecules like water. And just recently, even though the construction is not quite complete, ALMA has detected water in a galaxy that is the furthest water that's ever been detected from us. So it's the, the furthest back in the universe or the earliest in time. Okay, so this is water that's billions of years old. I mean, I suppose that's not terribly surprising. I mean, uh, all the ingredients for water have been there since uh, very early days, so finding water might not be. But what does that tell us? Is there some reason to think that this might indicate that there's, there was very old biology, that there could have been living things 10 billion years ago, for example? Well, we certainly can't rule out the possibility. I mean, the earlier these molecules form, the more likely it is that there will be conditions with the appropriate chemistry to give rise to life somewhere in the universe. And so the more we learn about how, the, how early these things formed, how long they've been evolving, the more likely it is that we'll find systems that are similar to our own. You know, it's, it's quite interesting because when we think of ancient life, people might think of the dinosaurs. But the dinosaurs were, you know, 100 million years ago. That's nothing. We're, we're talking about the possibility of life here long before the dinosaurs, the trilobites, even the first microbes on Earth, long before the Earth. I mean, that might suggest that biology is really much older than the hills. Absolutely. No, in fact, our whole solar system is very young relative to the universe itself. Fantastic. Well, Alison Peck, thank you so very much for a very interesting discussion. Thank you for having me. 
Allison Peck is a scientist at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Charlottesville, Virginia. So we've been talking about years and decades and millennia and stretches of geologic time and end with stretches of cosmologic time in the billions of years. Yeah. Well, you know, I think our problem with it is fundamentally that we think in terms of time to, well, the time to dinner, you know, (laughs) our life is shaped by short time scales, you know, hours, days, maybe a few weeks. I mean, look at how few people actually plan for their retirement. So the universe, which operates on time scales of millions or billions of years, well, I mean, we're just not wired to deal with that easily. It's like Wagnerian opera. It takes a long time for things to develop. Here's something we can understand, our appreciation for the endless hard work of Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. And also the support of Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been having a good time listening to Deep Time. Want more Big Picture Science? Find us on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not become a fan of the program on Facebook? and leave your comments there as well. And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because, after all, who has time deep enough to download, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know that you like the show. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection. The lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. <laughs> Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.